From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. And then, and then Barry John said to the vicar, I had one of those, but both the wheels fell off. Oh, I think we're live. Charles, I think we're live. I think we're live. <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody, to The Groundsman. Joining me, the handsome visage of the pirate captain himself, Charles Morgan. Hi, mate. Hello, Grant. It's lovely to see you, too. Good to see you. Uh, missing, of course, is our old mate, Roger Mitchell. Uh, I don't think it's talking out of school to, to let you know where he is. He... You've probably been reading the, the papers this week. If you're a sports fan, you've seen that uh, Stephen Gerrard has gone to manage Aston Villa now. And so Roger is currently up in Glasgow interviewing for the job of manager of Rangers, which came as a big surprise to Giles and I when he told us. But, um, you know, with uh, with all his experience, Giles, I reckon he's got a good crack at getting that job. What do you think? I'm delighted for him. I think there's no better man for the job. He has, the, if not the stature, he's certainly got the experience. Exactly right. Well, matey, listen, there's so much to talk about and we've only got 45 minutes to do it now. So um, why, don't we, uh, why don't we jump in? What, if, uh, what have you seen this, uh, this last couple of weeks that's got, you all, got your panties in a bunch? <laughs> well, I'm not really a Formula One person, but I have No, you're very much go-kart. Very, very go-kart sort of man. I am go-kart. <laughs> very yeah, go-kart. Very I'm a, slow, a slower carriage is my, <laughs> is my thing. But the, um, the Lewis Hamilton story, not just what happened in Brazil, but the rivalry of him and Verstappen, which seems to get more and more, um, between the teams, seems to get more and more crunchy. Um, I'm loving it. It's, it's Prost and Senna. It's a, it's a new era um, for proper rivalry, two brilliant drivers. Um, I also think, and I did watch that that Grand Prix on on Sunday. I think for, for for Lewis to do what he did and to come back from the back of the pack and to come all the way through, has to be considered one of the best best drives. And I don't know anything about it, and I was completely smitten. Yeah, I, I just uh, I, I got to say it, it it was without question one of the great drives of all time. There's no there's no two ways about that. It was absolutely remarkable what he did. Um, yeah, as as Red Bull were intimating, almost too remarkable in some ways. I mean, the speed that Mercedes car picked up was absolutely unbelievable. And you kind of sit there. It's, it, it's almost got that Ben Johnson feel about it, Charles, you know, when in, the, in the Seoul Olympics when he just cruised that 100 metres and you go, I've just seen something unbelievable. And then obviously days later something comes out. I'm not saying that's what's happened with Mercedes, but it, it was so good. You're almost thinking, can that be legit particularly when you look at all the other stuff that's going on around it with you know engine penalties and rear wings being 0.2 millimeter thick but this rivalry between Verstappen and um and Hamilton is just fantastic to watch you see and you know we've obviously on this show been huge fans of Drive to Survive now since it began uh, a number of years ago this season uh when they when they put this season's uh episodes up I mean I can't help but think it's going to be absolutely off the charts. There's been so much drama this year, so many talking points. So to take us behind the scenes of all this is just going to be grab the popcorn and sit and binge watch the whole thing, I think. Well, I think so. And sometimes you feel that not necessarily the drive to survive, but sometimes content makers are trying to create drama out of no drama yeah. in order to make a compelling documentary. And, you know, you have the kind of 
sort of sweeping violin music and trying to create pathos and various things in order to create drama. Nothing is required here. No. It's just press play and give us the story behind some of this. And I think with the next three, I think it's Kata, Jeddah and Abu Dhabi, the, the final three. I mean, there's nothing. There's a cigarette paper. Well, you're probably not allowed to say that anymore with no sponsorship of cigarettes. But Other, other addictive it, substances it, are available. There you go. I think we're covered now. <laughs> I, I just, I, I will be watching. And I know that, you know, when, when you think about the Formula One story and where Formula One was even two, three years ago where people were saying, where, where's the sport going? It seems to have had its um, renaissance um, in, in the modern era with the stories, with these drivers. And it's utterly compelling. Yeah. I, the interesting thing for me when, when you look at this is... Um, yeah, but whenever you get these these rivalries, whatever sport it's in, you tend to get the the same two characters, right? You get the the cool, calm. You get the Bjorn Borg type and the McEnroe type. You get the Federer type and the Djokovic type. Yeah, you, know, you get you get those two different personality types. And it's interesting with you know Prost and Senna, same, right? Um, but this one's a little bit different because even though Hamilton is very cool and very media savvy, he's He's not as well liked or loved as someone who's been successful as he has. It ordinarily seems to be, you know. So, so it's not as though you've got the the, the absolute fan favorite and the young spiky upcomer. There's 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 a big divide on both of these guys, which for me makes it even more compelling. There isn't a guy in a white hat and a guy in a black hat. This is this is you know pick your side and and follow him. And go, and they're both got their flaws, which means you yeah. you can't. They're not universally loved. You can't. You're right because you think of great rivalries, and you think of say Federer. He's sort of Rolls Royce perfection and glidey and was whatever. And then Nadal looked more like a pirate captain. Obviously, I can identify with that. Um, and and then Djokovic even more spiky. And I mean that that's not that that rivalry is insane. But you're right with this is that neither necessarily just fit straight into anybody's wheelhouse. But then, I mean, I think particularly being British as we are, Hamilton hasn't been an easy person to be to, no. to, to just naturally love. But boy, oh boy, you respect him. And I think for me, uh, there was a moment on that Sunday when what he did as someone who is not a petrol head going, yeah. I think I've just seen something very, very special, and he for that he gets my my respect, even if I don't warm to him as a as a personality, and that's okay. You don't have to be charming. You don't have to get it all right. But sport ultimately demands that respect of of achievement. Well, ha Hamilton's kind of you know the Nick Faldo of Formula One, right? I mean, he's a guy that's who a all, his, good, all his peers respect his talent immensely. He's he's an incredibly talented and driven individual, and you know Faldo. It really wasn't until he beat Norman at Augusta in 96 and, you know, became a lot more loved by the people. And then once he retired, he could let his real personality out and he became loved afterwards. But, you know, during this day, again, he was, I was rooting for Norman in that 96 Masters. You know, I desperately wanted Greg Norman to, to get a green jacket and, and found those the only English champion that I've ever rooted against and I, you know I've, I've grown to love Faldo I think he's fantastic I'm a huge fan of his now but at the time he was a great golfer but there just wasn't much about him to to kind of you know nail your colors to really 
No, I think that's and it's not I think the early Andy Murray was a similar kind of character. He was good, but he was just kind of seemed to be truculent a bit and got so angry with himself that you couldn't really warm and then they obviously he hasn't quite retired and he's still going. But a couple of documentaries, I think it was a Amazon one they made about him and the humour of the man behind the scenes. He's a very funny, warm, yeah. lovely, caring man. He just you hadn't seen that side of him and I think there becomes a revelation sometimes at some point in a career and I said it'd be interesting to see in 10 years time what what Lewis Hamilton is as a inverted commas personality is because certainly what he's done on the track it's extraordinary well I mean look I mean the the the, the pin-up for this is Steve Davis obviously right I mean when Steve Davis was in his pomp he was unbeatable and you know he was his nickname was Steve Interesting Davis because he was so boring but you know, once his snooker career finished, he's a DJ, he's very, very funny, he's quick-witted, he, he'll make fun of himself. He's, he's, he's fantastic, right? And the, and the public loves Steve Davis now, whereas before he was, he was you know, almost the, the, the pantomime villain against Jimmy White and Alex Higgins and guys. But isn't it interesting as well, you bring that up and you think of those great characters um, like Steve Davis, but the, the Barry Hearn stable, yeah. as was at, at Match Play Sport, and then you think of the... The, the boxing um, stables that have been created and the, the, the personalities. You would say that those two sports, and Barry has been involved in boxing and snooker and darts, and there's a, there's a synergy between all of those sports, which other sports could learn on as we talk about the power of the athlete, of the um, using Instagram and using all of yep. the things that we talk about, is someone like Barry was a genius, so is Don King, of absolutely understanding the pantomime villainy of very serious sports people with insane talents in order to create either to be divisive, either to be beloved, but so that you could hang your hat on whoever you needed to hang. And I remember seeing a documentary, Barry, saying that within his stable, he needed to have a personality type for almost every iteration of the 18, 20 million people who would watch snooker so that you would be pleased if it was Alex Hurricane Higgins or whatever it may be. And there's something that I've never even thought about this is that as these sort of social media platforms come along and we're seeing the power of the individual is they could learn a lot from those old promoters yeah, yeah. about how to curate personality to create growth. Oh, I mean, look, you, you, Don King and, uh, and and Barry Hearn would have a field day today with social media. And that actually, it's funny, it's funny you, you bring that up because that brings me on to something I, I, I wanted to bring up this week and talk about. So it's, a, it's an, uh, an, an unrehearsed but perfect segue. And that's an article I saw in the the Times um, about uh, sentiment graphs, and uh, it's really interesting how the the narrative here is is turning a little bit. And and what the article talked about was how you know the players come off the pitch after a bad performance, and their their PR company is already looking at the sentiment charts, seeing the reactions of the fans. You know, all this data that you and Rog have been identifying is so important for sport now. It's all there, and it's being used now to you know kind of understand fan sentiment and create the appropriate apology for certain behavior that might be deemed you know worthy of an apology and it's interesting to me that the coverage is now changing and it's starting to to call this what it is say look this is hollow you know Maguire after the United City game uh, you know he, he was probably still in the in the shower in the changing rooms after getting thumped and um you know there's an apology tweet gone out with a picture of United team at the Stretford end and you know love hearts and footballs and we'll come back stronger and all the stuff that you know is insert platitude here but 
It's interesting that the media coverage is now starting to call this out and saying the fans are onto it. The fans don't want an apology. You know, Bruno Fernandes apologised for missing a penalty. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, that's the game. The fans understand it. And yes, they're going to be pissed if the player misses a penalty and loses the game, whatever. You know, we had the same thing at Fulham when Adamola Lookman tried a Paninka penalty in the last, you know, in extra time, which would have gotten us a point against West Ham and just chipped it woefully into the arms of the goalkeeper. And I, as a Fulham fan myself, I was absolutely spewing. But I've, well, I've forgotten about it. I didn't need an apology. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And I think this data that, you know, you and Rog have been so in front of talking about how important it is. It's now reaching that point where it risks upending the integrity of not just the game, but the relationship between the fan and the players, because it becomes all about what does the data tell us? And the data is going to tell you certain things, but it's not going to really tell you the contents of a fan's heart at a given moment. It's not going to be able to understand the nuance of yeah of course we're pissed off in the moment that we got thumped 5-0 by Man City but you know what we're United fans we're going to be back in this we don't need to apologize to us about this stuff so I'd be interested in your thoughts because you know you've been so eloquent in your in making the case for why data is so important so I'd love to get your thoughts on on just this kind of slight twist in the attitude towards it well I, I'm interested and I think the story is right and it comes back to a, a real basic truth, truism of, of sport or fandom of sport is all of us want authenticity in the same way that if you watch an inauthentic tennis match an exhibition match it's crap no one cares the fan knows the fan knows the difference between something that is staged and something that is not staged and that relationship that the fan has with with their hero I think in a social media sense maybe it's it, the tipping point's been reached and I was thinking about it as you were talking about that and it's it's sort of related but you'll you'll see where I'm going with this I remember as a little boy as many little boys in the 1970s wanted to do was have a whole, and well, girls I'm sure but have an autograph book yeah. and I wanted to get autographs of people and it I remember a few times going to various events, Somerset County Cricket Club, and they came across, they came this brilliant idea of printed postcards with an autograph on. That was no good to me. Nope. I needed the ballpoint pen on my piece of paper or a piece of paper and stapled in that meant that somehow I'd had a physical connection with a real human being who was my hero, Joel Garner, Ian Botham, Viv Richards, blah, blah, blah. And there's something about what you're saying true, which is, if someone's on Instagram and it's them talking about how they messed up a goal or and you know it's them and it comes from the heart and it's clear they've been the author, to your point, can you imagine Hurricane Higgins on social media? Oh, yeah. It right. would have been gold because yeah. you'd know it was coming from him and it would be funny and authentic and the fan would feel the engagement. The moment it's a PR company, the moment it's trite bollocks saying, oh, you know, very disappointed to have let the fans down today, I sh will try harder next time, kind of, kind of um, shtick, just doesn't, it's not the relationship. And I think particularly, again, so much of our podcast has been about the investment in sport, the potential of sport, the growth of sport. It comes back to the very thing that's in the opening credits of our show, which is, if you're not about the fan, ultimately you will you won't get it right, yeah. because the fan understands whether it's authenticity on the field. They want authenticity off the field with the relationship. You get it wrong, 
and you you get found out and for me it, that's the autograph book anomaly i i remember because I've, i was showing someone my autograph book and my absolute hero as a kid was ian botham and i went to somerset three or four times and i couldn't get his autograph and i'm a nine-year-old boy gutted and my father was going up on a train to scotland to watch scotland versus wales and he came back um from this trip beaming with pride because there on his checkbook, he'd ripped the back of his checkbook in half because he'd happened to sit next to Ian Botham who was coming back from some match or something on a train and he was able to go, Dear Giles, best wishes, Ian Botham. And Dad gave me this thing and I have it to this day and it is my ultimate shrine to fandom because my father, who's no longer with us, had managed to get on a board... It sounds so ridiculous, probably no, to a young it generation. They wouldn't it understand it. To anybody it is, that... Yeah that live through this i get it is it. my I single most valuable sporting memorabilia partly the connection of my dad who died 30 years ago but more is that i could only imagine that i was sitting in a train carriage with ian botham age nine with my dad there talking to him about whatever god knows what and getting this auto and then being with a ripped up checkbook i mean it doesn't get better yeah. i have it framed it, it is my it is my valuable thing you know, and, and, and the beauty of that, Giles, is that your dad could have been <laughs> pissed in the pub with his mates and said, here, buddy, sign this for you, <laughs> for my boy. Just sign it, Ian Botham, he'll love that. And it, <laughs> but it wouldn't, it wouldn't have made any difference, right? Because to you, it's, that's, it's the connection. And, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's funny, you, you, when, when you look at this, and this, uh, one of the reasons that this spin on this story has kind of taken a turn for the worse for the players and the PR agents is that there's been a bunch of examples of tweets going out um, from players that were sent by the agency under the wrong player's account. You know, they're, they're running their social media accounts for different players at different clubs, and there's been some farcical tweets gone out that make no sense and, in fact, have really pissed the fans off and quickly been deleted because they realised, oh, shit, we should have put that out for the, you know, the Burnley goalkeeper instead of the Spurs striker. And it just, it just speaks to this, this authenticity that we, that we talk about so much on this show. And... You know, I, I worry, and, and and one of the one of the key arguments that we've had, not arguments in fact, but one of the key differences we've seen is this idea that people now follow the players and not the teams. And you know that when you look at what's happening here, as I said, that that, that Sunderland till I die documentary, which is still probably my favourite of all the reality yeah. sports shows we've seen, just yeah. because it's so raw and so real, and. You remember at the end of the first season when they get relegated and the fans are absolutely apoplectic. They're so angry at the management and the directors and they're furious at the players and the coaches. They're just angry about everything. And then you kind of fast forward to the first episode of the next season and they're all, I can't wait to get back in the ground. I can't wait. Because it's the team. They're just there to support their team. And, and you know, Roger's been absolutely right about this, saying how Gen Z identify with the players and so they're going to follow the players and so, you know, I wonder, this whole inauthenticity problem, does it matter if the new generations are just going to go from team to team and follow one player? Maybe that connection is important enough for the furtherance of the financial standing of the players and the, and the agents. Maybe it is worth tarnishing that authenticity and that connection because, hey, to hell with it. We'll just, we'll just move on and we'll, we'll have a new load of fans regardless. It doesn't matter. I hope not. 
Well, I was thinking as you were saying that, I mean, again, you're thinking, can you imagine Barry Hearn teaching people how to use Instagram? It, it's kind of an interesting thought. But, but I think actually in the music world, I think one of the great tweeters who gets social media so right and is very funny and very rude by moments and is James Brown. Absolutely right. And, Spot on. And it is, it is so funny, the self-deprecation yep. of the guy, given he's been successful as a musician, but he doesn't take himself seriously. He clearly doesn't care. His life's pretty good, and he's got plenty of reasons for that. But the way he conducts himself is, if I were a fan, which I'm not particularly of him, but compared to there are some mega, there are some mega stars out there, rock musicians, that you can tell this is banal studio crap yeah. that has absolutely not got their uh, signature on it. So their digital signature, to use my autograph example. But if it's authentic, you've, you've got the fan. Yeah, totally agree. Very interesting. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, listen, we're, we're going we're to run danger running talking about just one thing all day. What, what else have you got for us? Well, I was quite amused given Roger's quite sort of tough on Emma Raducanu, I know. And he thinks that, you know, her star maybe already on the wane before it's sort of after a brief moment in its zenith to use some sort of astrological nonsense. But I, I saw that she's just re- uh, got a new coach. She does. I think she's uh, Torben um, Belts, who was doing Kerber. And it's interesting to me that the, the Raducanu machine looks like it's focusing back on tennis quick smart, given we've talked about that there may have been a little bit too much... Uh, sort of catwalk stuff and and getting distracted but it it's interesting that the, the coach she's got is someone who's not been a, was not a former player very much a a character um but has had some great success yeah. obviously in the past and i because i hope that this will be a way let her she can humanize that's such a marketing word but i want to see this 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 girl with huge amounts of talent humanize herself on the court first by playing the kind of tennis as she did at the US Open that appeals to us. And it doesn't mean she can't do commercial deals, but she's got to get her kind of tennis world sorted so that we can find that connection with her on an ongoing basis. I don't mean what she's already done is astonishing, but I was interested to see that uh, Torben been, uh, had been appointed. The Raducanu thing, I, I take the other side to Roger. I think to have a kid, and let's face it, she's a kid, she's 18 years old, right? Win the US Open as a first tournament, having never, you know, reached a final on the tour, having never gone deep in any tournament, is remarkable. And there is a certain end-of-season feel about the US Open anyway. You know, it's the last of the majors in September. There's only a couple of months left, and there's only a couple of decent-sized tournaments after that, one of which is reserved for the top players that year. So there's an end-of-season feel to it. So I think if you do what she did and win that tournament, it's inevitable that for those last couple of months, you're going to get caught up in this whirlwind. And you don't have Wimbledon, the French Open, and the Aussie Open to prepare for. They're they're not on your horizon. So for me, I think it's actually great that she goes through this now after winning the US Open. The season ends, she's got a new coach, and she can refocus and get ready for the Aussie Open in January. You know, and, and that's when I think she should be judged. If she's going into the Aussie Open at the beginning of next year and it's all about, you know, Vogue shoots and commercial deals, then I think you've got a problem. But I think having got all that out of her system and God knows she's earned it. I mean, gee whiz. Now she's got a new coach. Let's see what happens. Let's give her a chance to, to knuckle down and, and train through the winter and come back for the next 
Grand Slam when she really will have a target on her back for the first time, really. I mean, Indian Wells is Indian Wells, and you know she had a couple of wins in, in I forget the other two, in somewhere in, uh, was it Romania? But look, it's irrelevant in the scheme of things. Let's face it. The reality is the Aussie yeah. Open is when it begins again. So I'm, I'm delighted that she's had this success and delighted that she's done this with it. Yeah. But now, I think now is the time you want to start saying, okay, well, now let's see what she's got. And, and hopefully the management feel the same way and we'll kind of get a focus back on tennis and not the commercial stuff. And the coach will settle her down and, and you know, get, get her right on the court. And I, I'm, I'm hugely excited for her. I really so. I think next year is going to be make or break for her, but I think it'll be a big year for her. I hope so. Well, me too. And tell me, did you see we were able to catch on your side of the pond... Um, the 2020 cr- cricket final and a- Australia doing the Kiwis again. Man, I tell you, those the Aussies are just—they're they're unbelievable. You know, th- th- there's something about there's something about Aussies that, no matter what the sport is, they just have this ability, like no other country on earth, to win stuff. I mean, it, it's it's amazing to me, and it's been quite galling over the years in in, in many cases. I mean, really, we've got a couple of Ashes wins, Giles, but it's really only the Rugby World Cup in 2003 that's really the only kind of major success we've we've had over the Aussies and there's something about what is it about the Aussies that allows them to do this time after time after time well I think I've said this before on one of our shows in 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 the past because we also therefore got to look at the New Zealanders and and particularly not so much in rugby anymore with world cups they've got they've got they've got most of that bogey off but they can have been known and leveled at being as chokers which is harsh they're still pretty successful but there's an interesting mentality between and there was a difference i used to spend a lot of time down in new zealand of the difference between australians and, and new zealanders is that where new zealanders particularly in rugby so less relevant in this cricket conversation but get nervous of they get scared to win because such is the expectation whilst the australians just love to win and they yeah. don't fear loss, but they you give them a final, you've got to be very brave to back against an Aussie. Once they get there, given how England yeah, in the 2020 totally in the in in the group, they absolutely flattened Australia. And you would have thought that England were gonna progress through and, and England didn't. But when they get to a final, you're a brave man or woman to bet against the Aussies. They've just got the dog in them on the fight. And it's the most... I have a great friend, Steve Martin, who works in the sports yeah. industry. Yeah, I've met Steve. Who spent... You've met Steve. So yeah. he spent a couple of years down in Australia. He's back now, and I caught up with him not that long ago. And I said, how was it down there? And he said, you have no idea, as a parent of kids, young, of his girls, who I think they're very keen tennis players, he said they were good when they lived in Surrey. But when they experience the Australian way that they will do sports and the kids are coached and the absolute uh, relentless um, competition just to do as well as you can do and not uh, and not to get... He said they've come back as far better. But yeah. my God, those Aussies take it. And I think it's something... There's probably, you know, sociologists and historians would say that this comes back to where it all started and the, the sort of where it, where they came from. And therefore you had to fight to survive because it was a pretty austere place to be. But boy, it's in the DNA of that country that if you get to a final, you've got one hell of a job to try and knock them off their perch, bastards. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, Giles. When I moved down there in 2005, you know, and my, my kids were young at the time. My eldest, Molly, was 14 and my youngest, Bronte, was eight. 
And I took them along to Nippers, which is like a surf life-saving thing on a Sunday morning. It's fantastic. You know, all the, all the beaches up and down the coast of Sydney do this, and each little beach has its own Nippers, and it's just surf life-saving. So the kids all show up, and they've got their Speedos on, their little hats, and they, and they get taught safety in the surf. And you go along, and all the parents have a, a sausage barbecue afterwards. It's, it's great fun, right? It's, great. it's good to see the kids out playing games on the beach on a Sunday morning. And all the hungover dads standing around with a glass of coffee. <laughs> but uh, so, so we rock up one day. And, and there's a sign up that says, you know, danger blue bottles. And I'm like, blue, what's a blue bottle? So, I, you know, I said, oh, yeah, mate, yeah, there, there's, uh, there's blueies in the water today. So uh, just be careful. So I didn't know what this was. So I walked out and, and strewn along the beach are all these jellyfish, these blue bottles, which, are, you know, they look like gyoza, like transparent blue gyoza with yards of stingers trailing them. And they're washed up all over the beach. And I'm thinking, well, Obviously, Nippers is cancelled. I mean, the seas is littered <laughs> with jellyfish. So you go down there and they're like, right now, kids, there's blueies in the water. What do we do when there's blueies in the water? We're careful. That's right, we're careful. Now, in you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I watched all this and I, and I packed my poor kids off into the water. And I was standing on the side going, don't get stung by jellyfish. Don't make me pee on you in public. This is just a, this is going to be a disaster. They get through it. A couple of kids get stung and it's, ah, oh, she'll be right. Throw some water over it. You'll be right. It's only when I get home and I Google blue bottles that I realise that in huh. Europe we call them Portuguese man of war jellyfish. In Australia, <laughs> that's a bluey. I mean, it's the most inoffensive thing you can think about. They're just they're just different down there, Giles. They're just different down there. I'm afraid. Yeah, and I have a bit of experience in that. I used to play at the Hong Kong Cricket Club, and I went for my sort of initiation to welcome to the club. And the general manager at the time said to me, he said, oh, you get down there, go and have a net with the guys. You'll be playing with the guys who haven't yet got into the club. They're playing for places to get into the Hong Kong Cricket Club. And as you know, Hong Kong, it's full of South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders, yeah. a lot of Indians and Pakistanis as well. I think they were playing, there were 30 lads there playing for five places for membership in the club. And I'd got in. So I was sent down to bat. <laughs> I have never faced, but after three balls that went past me, I went and put on a lid, as many bits of, of protective equipment as I could find, as these guys go, there's a bald pom down the far end, let's take him out. <laughs> there was no nice to see you, it was straight yeah. in. It's, um, it, it is amazing, and then, and, and, and I just thought on the cricket, I mean, bring it back to the cricket, it's, New Zealand cricket's been a wonderful um, story, particularly in the short form, originally ODIs and then and then 2020 and our good mate on the show Chris Cairns who we'll be talking to in a, in a few weeks I hope you know the, the the style of play that the Kiwis have played has been magnificent um to see it on the 2020 stage and I really thought this was the time you know given that England had obviously oh, won the World the way Cup. That, the way that Kiwi New lost Zealand. that World Cup was, even for a Brit, yeah. that was heartbreaking. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. Boy, boy. It was heartbreaking. And then I thought, here we go. And they weren't just beaten in the final. They were absolutely demolished. It was, I mean. But wasn't it, wasn't it good to see David Warner facing the spinners without a helmet on? I, I was just, it was yeah. just great. I loved that. I don't know why more batsmen don't take the helmet off when they're facing the spinners. It was fantastic. Well, listen, we're, we're, so we're, we're running out of time. Let's run through a couple more things. One other thing I wanted to bring up was, again, it kind of uh, back to football. And this is the, the thing that, that, that we flashed up earlier on uh, about Roy Keane's punditry. And you know, I'm a huge fan of Roy Keane. And, I, and I've really enjoyed, I think he's straight down the, the middle and you, you kind of get opinions from him that you, you don't get from anybody else. But this headline, I think, is 
is really sadly where this is going when it talks about Roy Keane's hollow punditry of extremes. And that's really what it's become, you know. The, the, the social media clips of Roy Keane slagging somebody off and calling out Man United players and this and that, and he's terrible and he's a disgrace. We've reached the point where that's all people want to hear. They just want to hear Roy Keane slagging people off. And so, you know, even though it talks about punditry of extremes, on the one extreme where he offers praise for people, there's scant little of that. And the rest is just, okay, Roy, slag someone off for five minutes, go. And again, that authenticity, you know, when you look at when Gary Neville started punditry, I, I thought it was fantastic, right? You've got real insight into how a player's mind works. He wasn't afraid to call players out, but he he wasn't just pinned on one end of the scale as, as let's go to the, you know, the, the grumpy old Labrador in the corner and get him to bark a couple of times. And, and again, I, I worry that this fascination with social media and the need for something that's shareable and clickable means that all they're going to do is say, right, Roy, come on, slag Maguire off. You know, uh, when you look at what happened, Maguire had had a tough week and he'd been, you know, the, the, the same tweet we talked about earlier on after the Man City game. He copped it from the fans and copped it from pundits and, you know, he's had a couple of bad games or whatever. And so he scores a goal for England. And when he celebrates in the moment, you know, he's kind of giving it this to the crowd, like, you know, I can't hear you or sticking his fingers in his ears. You just scored a goal for your country. You're not carefully calculating what you're doing. It's pure adrenaline. So to have Kane, uh, Kane, sorry, then come on talking about how he was, quote unquote, disgraceful. You know, that reaction is disgraceful. It's not disgraceful. I get your point. It's like, you know, scoring a goal against Albania for England doesn't come close to you know, cancelling out the poor performance against Man City for your club, but it's not disgraceful. But if Roy Keane hadn't said it was disgraceful and, you know, he should be ashamed of himself, I think he said, that, that click would not have been shared. It would have been ignored. And, of course, once that is said at half time, it becomes everything that the commentators talk about in the second half, every time Maguire touches the ball. And this need to titillate people with, with extremes, again, it comes back to what we've been talking about. It's not authentic. It's just now become, it was authentic. It was authentic Roy Keane. And now it's, okay, stick a penny in the slot and let's see if we can get Roy Keane slag someone off for five minutes. Well, it's clickbait, isn't it? But it's not authentic clickbait. And, it, and, and that really grates us. You know, I always think, you know, everyone's cup of tea, but in his pomp, I used to think that Jeffrey Boycott's comments were wonderful at cricket because yeah. he wouldn't know how to call anything other than a shovel and did. At the same time, he could and was very generous about people who played well because it's what he saw in front of him. And this was a great cricketer who played the style, which wasn't to everybody's thing. But you got it from the heart. And I think everything that we talk about on this show, everything you talked about in the previous story, is exactly this. Is if, And it's a great lesson for the private equity investors, the marketing consultants that surround sport, all the people that create the circus and the pantomime, is if you lose this authenticity, whether you're a commentator on the sport, whether you're a fan of the sport, whether you're a player of the sport, if you don't get it into the basic relationship between fan and player and what that means emotively you lose people far quicker than you think and i think it's it, it was really interesting to me and I, I don't know if this is a good or bad thing to say or not but i was lucky enough to um to be at twickenham last weekend for the england australia match and there'd been a big furore you'll probably remember early in the year about swing low um yeah. being whether swing low should be and the rfu have taken swing low out and i understand why because of you know the the racial um heritage of the song etc 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 
there was the most amazing last post, right? Because yep. it's sort of Remembrance Weekend, played by a bugler. And I've never heard two national anthems, or particularly the English one, there weren't many Aussies there, but it, it was very emotive. This was a tribe celebrating everything about Remembrance Sunday, the, the, then the national anthem, and then the old enemy, England versus Australia. The fans, and it was 5.30, everybody was shit-faced. It was brilliant. And at some point... A swing low starts going around the, the stadium, sung by real fans, not in any way about racism. It was just no, a celebration of supporting their country in a in the stadium after a long time away, a proper international. And it was one, given that rugby union, I mean, in Wales, it's different, but Twickenham doesn't necessarily take the roof off very often. It's a little bit more wax jackets and a little bit more demure. It wasn't. And it was brilliant to see. And I thought to to some of the people who desperately want to sort of control everything, sometimes authenticity is, well, in fact, always authenticity in sport is what comes from the heart, not necessarily from the playbook. Well, it's a, it's a great point. And sadly, the best that the authorities can do is, you know, the, the only middle ground they've got is to let that happen, right? Is not to ban singing it in the grounds, which is just, Farcical. You know, there's not one fan in that stadium singing that song, nor have there ever been. I would be, I would be staggered. Who was singing it as some sort of racist anthem? I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's pathetic and absurd, it's, frankly. So fine to say, as you say, I understand why they've said right, we're not going to sing it. But if the fans start singing it and you start putting signs up on the scoreboard saying, please don't sing that song, that is beyond the pale to me. And that that's where you start to lose the fans when you do that. I mean, it's just it's it's the thin end of a very very nasty wedge, unfortunately. And yet, on on that note, and you'll know this from uh, from from extraordinary news coming out all over the English media to, today at a parliamentary select committee, your former Yorkshire player Azim Razik, um, who's been in front of a parliamentary select committee to talk about um, systemic racism within Yorkshire and and the broader county game game of cricket, has I think shocked a lot of us to the core. Um, his very emotional. Um, deposition if that's the right word about what he experienced has I think left you know this is the other end of the wedge which is my goodness this is a sport and maybe there are others like this which need to you know we talk about the Blazers being a bit behind on the commercial realities of sport and it's a job for the boys and we need to tidy up this is something which is I think a really shocking story that I think for me who's been a cricket fan all my life but I've never played county cricket. I had no idea that, there, that this existed. In fact, having played fairly poor level club cricket all my life, one of the things I loved about the sport genuinely it was that you play in a league match or whatever and you'd have people from all over the world playing because people from all over the world play cricket. So there was a lot of fun. What I had no idea, and I think a lot of people either hid it or have been very shocked, is this Yorkshire story. And it's not just reserved for Yorkshire. There are other counties who are having the fingers pulled, uh, pointed at them, which is there's there's a problem that will need to be solved very, very quickly. Yeah, no, agreed. It, it, it was shocking to see him give testimony, you know. And, and look, it's well, I think we're at that point in time where a lot of these things that, that went on, during a certain time in a certain era when when such things weren't as as widely kind of frowned upon as they are now you can look at it through today's ends and, and you understand the horror of it all obviously cricket has its a lot of its roots in the colonial era right this was a this was a game that really grew up 
at the time when England had colonies all over the world and much of the cricket was played in those colonies, right, by, by a class of Brit who very much saw the locals as servants and, and, and as lessers. And, and so you, it's not difficult to trace the roots of all this, Charles, at all. It's shocking that it, that, that continued for you know, 100-plus years, that that attitude didn't change. And, look, and, and there's, there's plenty of people, apologists for this, who are going to say it's banter. And, look, I grew up in England in the 70s as well, so I know that there is an element of that which is banter. You know, I grew up in a place and a time where I had kids of all nationalities in my class at school who were all great friends of ours. And we would all throw racial epithets back at each other. But we were friends, right? We would hang out with each other in our houses and it was just, that's what it was. And, and in your own circle of friends, we everyone would have been mortified if anyone else had taken offence at that. But times change. And so, you know, the things that you would have done I would have, I would have done as a kid 40 years ago never mind what you do in a cricket dressing room 100 years ago those those times have changed and, and people have to move with it and and you know as I said I was shocked watching that testimony and when I read the headlines I didn't have any idea of the extent of this you know I thought it was just a bit of banter you know it was just a bit of name calling in fun amongst teammates right and that's what yeah. you do is so everyone's got a yeah. nickname in a team like that so yeah I, I like you know, I was shocked to see the extent of this I, I just thought it was it was horrific yeah well and there'll be more to come over the week I suspect so it will be interesting to see how this plays out on more cheery news I was um, also very thrilled to see Ireland beat the All Blacks yeah wasn't that great I don't that's th- and, was and it three times in a row now they've beaten them I know. And I can only imagine, I think every rugby fan, when something like that, when Ireland do well and you're not in Dublin, every fan would say the same thing. I, I wish, wish I was, was in Dublin. Dublin right now. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it, it was great. I mean, yeah. look, in, in fairness, you, you, I, I watched the game. I thought the Kiwis looked very tired and it is the end of a long, long, long year for them. Um, yeah. if, you're, if you're ever going to beat the Kiwis... You know, uh, the the full series in Europe is your best shot. Um, yeah, but um, I look, I mean, true. I mean, fair play to Ireland. I think, I think is that three in a row they beat them now, or three out of the last four times they beat them. It's certainly, I think, yeah, I think it's, it is. It's isn't it? an extraordinary. It's amazing. And when you think the Wales haven't since Wales haven't won, I think since 1953, and got battered um, again the previous uh, week. <laughs> let's 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 not let's not brush that under the carpet, Charlo. Oh, I wish you would. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was uh, it was great. It really was. I, th- I think, look, every rugby fan loves to see the Kiwis get beaten and not because we hate the Kiwis, but you know that if you beat the Kiwis, you've seen something extraordinary from an underdog team that have come out and, and done something special. You know, whether it's, for me, whether it's England or, you know, I'll, I'll even make the exception. If I'd seen the Welsh beat the Kiwis, I'd have been overjoyed, Charles, just to see them do that, you know. But it's interesting you say that about, um, you know, the, the authenticity of sport and, and, and the, the, the power of the All Blacks. I remember the great um, rugby commentator, the greatest rugby commentator in my view, Bill McLaren, who I was very close to in the early part of my career. He used to tell me that as a young boy living in Hoyk in the borders, he watched the 19, I think it was the 1936, but it might have been the 1932 All Blacks come to play at Hoyk on their way up to come and play Scotland. And they hadn't been seen in Scotland for 12 years. So therefore there was this mystique about the scarcity value. And one of the things I do think that the New Zealand Rugby Union need to watch in the way that I think they rather hackney the harker too much now. I'm not saying the harker shouldn't happen. But they're kind of 
scarcity value we would talk about it with the british lions as well is that they have it they have run in danger of being overexposed and when they lose that veneer through sheer exhaustion which i think you might be right they've just have not stopped yeah is well and the welsh game it said was played for money not rather than than anything else it wasn't played in the main part of the international season is you've got to be careful with that brand because it actually the fear and the majesty of them being um indestructible which if you play with that too much again authenticity you you run the risk and I, i'm sure the next opposition for new zealand will get one hell of a well they'll have been pushed hard on the paddock but um still bloody good I, as i say i really wish i'd been in the center of dublin circa around about seven o'clock that evening i think it would have been quite entertaining no i, you know, I, I think i think it's such a great point you make that that messing with that brand of the kiwis for financial gain which is you know they're on the very very edge of this now um you know is is such a dangerous thing to do because it is it, it's it's arguably one of the most pristine brands in sport because of their record and because they are they are the mountaintop and they have been for such a long time now and if you regularly get the irish and everybody else plant a flag on the top that uh, that becomes a lot easier to scale and a lot less valuable i would think we ought to we ought to just before we wrap up quickly touch on the um the story about uh, Peng Shuai, the, the Chinese tennis player who made some uh, allegations against the, the vice premier of the country, which is, I mean, talk about a brave thing to do. Holy cow. I mean, this is extraordinary. And unfortunately, since she made the allegations of, uh, you know, uh, the kind of China's own Me Too movement, she's vanished. And there's a, a lot of people in the tennis world who are, who are worried about her whereabouts and her safety. I mean, again, this is... The dark side of sports once again but but china takes that to a whole new level well i have a little bit of experience not in this what is a ghastly story which we absolutely hope is not uh, is not um going to be a, a, an awful ending to the story but in my old days working with uh, with, with hsbc and golf all golf was controlled through government in china and going to beijing to discuss various discussions that needed to be made but even just about something as simple as a world golf championship uh, on the pga tour was quite scary it's the other side the sort of geopolitical muscle of sport we saw at the beijing olympics which was the most scary thing i've ever been to in my life it was not a celebration as jet after jet thundered over the the bird's nest stadium is that this is a scary story, not just for the individual, but the the the, the way that the, the the tweet was deleted and 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 oh, I, 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 it's a story that sends shivers down the spine when when all sports supposed to be is a a celebration of humanity, and here's a a player who's been one of the world's best, and we want her in the and China want her in the limelight because it's so good for China to celebrate sport. But this is um, she was so brave. Um, to say what she said and I, I hope this the next time we all meet I hope there is a, a resolution yeah amen to that well listen we've, we've just about run out of time um, before we go a quick thank you to our sponsors Entourage for helping us uh, put this on again it's been it's been another fun filled I was going to say hour but 45 minutes uh, Rog we both hope you get the job up there in uh, in Glasgow it would be <laughs> great to see you walking out in the blue shirt of Rangers um, sometime soon and for those of you watching thanks so much for spending this time with us um, we will do it again soon we will see you on the other side thanks so much for listening cheerio thanks Grum bye